The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The UK Supreme Court ruled today that Parliament must act before Prime Minister Theresa May can begin negotiations to leave the European Union. The ruling complicates the process of Brexit, which was approved by UK voters in June. But May's government says it still plans to start talks with the EU by the end of March. Here is Lord David Newberger, President of the Supreme Court, announcing the 8-3 ruling today. The referendum is of great political significance, but the Act of Parliament which established it did not say what should happen as a result. So any change in the law to give effect to the referendum must be made in the only way permitted by the UK Constitution, namely by an Act of Parliament. With us to discuss the ruling, as well as its implications for Brexit and UK constitutional law, are Michael Gordon, professor at the University of Liverpool, and Stephen Pears, professor at the University of Essex. Welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Mike, in a nutshell, what was the core of the reasoning of the UK Supreme Court majority today? Okay, so the, so the core of the reasoning today, uh, on, the, on the primary conclusion at least, that there's a need for an act of parliament to authorise the government beginning that process of negotiation of our, of our exit from the EU under, under Article 50 of the European Treaties, was that um, in domestic terms, EU law is what the majority call almost a new source of law in the UK constitution. And, and what the majority has concluded is that the government's royal prerogative powers, the sort of powers that the government possesses to conduct international relations and ratify treaties, can't be used to cut off a new source of law, as they call it, that the 1972 European Communities Act, an act of parliament that brought us into the EU, has established. So it's quite, it's quite an interesting argument about EU law being this sort of, this new source of law in the UK constitution, and them saying that the legislation of parliament in 1972 and legislation since then dealing with changes to our eu membership haven't you know um hasn't um given the government hasn't left the government with the power under the royal prerogative to sort of begin that process of withdrawal which they say is different from just change to the treaties which the act allows the process of withdrawal they say would be would be different because it would cut off this new source of of law that's the essential argument to the majority today stephen there were three in the minority what was their argument well, they stuck with the more traditional view, which is that the government's power to sign up to treaties and denounce treaties isn't limited, at least in this case, by the European Communities Act, because it would still stay on the books. And it, uh, even though it didn't create any legal effect, perhaps, it um, would uh, nevertheless, the, the minority felt, they wanted to give precedence to the, the government's power to act over parliament's power. It's sort of there are two rules really in conflict with each other here, whether whether you give precedence to the government's power to act over treaties or parliament's power to change its previous acts of parliament. And the majority went with the parliament's power having precedence. That minority went with the government's power having precedence. 
Mike, this case, of course, was on appeal. Uh, a lower court, the, the UK High Court, had had uh, also ruled that Parliament had to act. Uh, that was a few months ago. Are there material differences between what the Supreme Court said today and what the the, the High Court uh, said a few months ago? Yeah, I think there are. I think I think this this sort of line about a new source of law, EU law being recognised within the domestic UK constitutional system as a new source of law, does does sort of mark a difference from what the what the divisional court has said. I don't think the majority in the Supreme Court today have necessarily moved away too dramatically from what the divisional court had said in in and again reaching the same conclusions um, earlier before uh, Christmas. But I think this argument about a new source of law, it's potentially an uh, quite a novel one, but it's also potentially quite controversial. I think it's I, I think it's it's quite a, it, it's interesting that only now we are leaving the European Union as a result of the referendum vote. Has the court felt able to make quite strong claims about EU law being itself a source of law in in the constitution? Um, obviously, the Act of Parliament that brought us into the EU is still the crucial underpinning for that. But I think this this argument about EU law being a new source is is different. Perhaps, perhaps the other difference as well is that the Supreme Court seems to have moved away from some of the bigger constitutional claims that the Divisional Court made about, say, the constitutional status of the Act of Parliament that took us into the, into the, into the European Union. So there are some material and, and some quite interesting differences, I think, uh, even though the result is the same. Stephen, lawmakers, including some within May's Conservative Party, are talking about amending Article 50 with some roadblocks, such as calling for a so-called white paper. Tell us about those. Yes, well, especially the three bigger opposition parties, the the Liberals, the Scottish Nationalists and the Labour Party, have all said they'll propose amendments, and I think at least a few Conservatives will go along with them. So, uh, yeah, if you get a majority, if you get about 10 Conservatives jumping over and all the opposition together, uh, you would uh, uh, have a majority in the House of Commons to push through an amendment. So the sort of things that are tabling are different between the different parties. Uh, but there are things like a white paper, as you said, so we have a prior discussion before we go ahead and invoke Article 50. It's things like reporting regularly back to Parliament about the negotiations. It's the Liberals want to have a new referendum later on, and maybe the Scottish Nationalists as well. And that, I think it would be hard to get enough votes for that, but that's a, a crucial one. And some of them want to stay in the EU single market, which you can still do as a non-EU country. Uh, so that might be a big issue as well if they have enough votes for that. Mike, much like in this country with a lot of things going on with Donald Trump, there uh, the politics of various issues have sort of been scrambled. Is there a conservative uh, labor split on these issues that, that Steve was talking about, uh, or are these all issues that kind of cut across the parties? I think there are very clear, um, well, there are differences in position uh, between the Conservative government and the Labour Party. I think one of the things the Labour Party is finding it particularly difficult to quite pin down in relation to its uh, attempts to hold the government to account are, are how you get that balance that um, between putting in the kind of amendments to this bill that Steve was, was just talking about, you know, amendments that, that perhaps make the process of the government uh, negotiating Brexit a little bit more difficult, try to sort of um, obstruct would be the wrong word, but, but certainly try to condition and control that legally, 
Um, and also then the Labour Party's stated recognition that they, they want to give effect to the terms of the referendum. They don't want to be seen to be obstructing the triggering of Article 50. So that's quite a delicate balance uh, for, them to, for them to tread. And again, within, you know, within the Conservative Party, the, the government's majority is, is relatively narrow. So it doesn't take too many Conservatives who would perhaps have, have preferred to remain in the European Union, of which there are some, um, if not many. But it doesn't take too many of them to sort of to vote to vote with the opposition, perhaps to try and uh, get some traction to these amendments. But it's very unclear because, of course, I, I think all the parties there was a vote in Parliament previously that you know Parliament and the House of Commons has committed. We're talking about today's UK Supreme Court decision requiring an act of Parliament before Prime Minister Theresa May can start Brexit negotiations. UK Brexit Secretary David Davis moved quickly to try to douse any speculation that the ruling might derail Brexit. This judgment does not change the fact that the UK will be leaving the European Union, and it's our job to deliver on the instruction the people of the UK have given us. We're talking with Michael Gordon, a professor at the University of Liverpool, and Stephen Piers, a professor at the University of Essex. Steve, um, I gather that the, the UK Supreme Court didn't decide whether Article 50 is revocable. Um, you, you tweeted about that, and I want to ask you about the significance of, of that silence. Is there a possibility that once it is triggered that uh, Britain may, may change its mind? Yes, I wouldn't say it's a big possibility, but certainly some people believe that it's something they want to keep pressing for and arguing that maybe we should have another referendum or a vote of parliament on, on that issue. Uh, of course, it's an important legal question whether it is even possible to revoke the notice once it's sent. And it is very interesting the Supreme Court was deliberate in saying we don't take a view on that, even though the parties to the case decided that it, it, it was irrevocable. The Supreme Court said, well, that's, we're not going to decide that. The importance is, of that is that there's another case about to be brought, uh, strangely enough, in the Irish courts, asking the Irish courts to ask the EU court on whether Article 50 is revocable. So there are certainly people out there, and I'm sure the Supreme Court knew about this, who are planning somehow to try and get that question on. So there's arguments either way, of course. And if it is revocable, it doesn't mean politically that it's going to happen, that it could be revoked. But I think it does change the political dynamic, knowing the possibility is always there to revoke the Article 50 notices uh, after it's sent. Mike, we were talking about amendments to Article 50 earlier. And for May's critics, after she pledged last week to leave the EU's single market to win control of immigration and lawmaking, essentially a so-called hard Brexit, did that lead them to consider amendments even more? Um, I, I suspect it will. I suspect that um, having heard Theresa May's plan, or so far as it is a plan in her speech last week, or at least her identification of her uh, negotiating priorities, uh, I suspect that will uh, raise the stakes for those uh, parties who, um, who, are, who are opposed to Brexit. You know, but, I mean, I, I suspect many of them would have tried to advance the kind of amendments we're likely to see anyway, whether it means that those amendments in the context of Theresa May certainly going for quite a full-blooded Brexit, a, a withdrawal from the single market and, and probably from most aspects of the customs union as well, um, I suspect that will raise the stakes and, and perhaps garner more support for those amendments. 
Steve, there's uh, one other aspect of the ruling I want to ask you about. The court said that Theresa May did not need to consult with the regional governments of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Uh, uh, how significant is that part of the ruling? Well, in one way, it lets her off the hook because Scottish Parliament would certainly have uh, voted against it. The Northern Ireland Parliament is sort of suspended at the moment. It's not quite clear when we'll get it back because there's a, a separate political crisis there. It's not quite clear whether the Welsh government will go along with it either because they have their own plans they announced yesterday, which don't really match the, the Theresa May's plan. Uh, so she's avoided all of that. But the way in which the Supreme Court decided that, I think, creates further political problems of a different sort because it said basically that uh, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland can be ignored. And given that Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to stay, and given that so the Welsh government's taking a different view from the Westminster government, um, it's obviously going to irritate them a great deal. And uh, it, obviously the Scottish government in particular, being a Scottish nationalist government, is going to try and use this as part of its political arguments to try again for Scottish independence. It doesn't mean they'll get anywhere on that, but it's certainly uh, an argument they can try and make. So it sounds like she may have some political reasons to uh, consult with those regional governments, even if she doesn't isn't legally re required to do it. I want to thank our guests, uh, Michael Gordon at the University of Liverpool and Stephen Piers at the University of Essex. Uh, that's a word I keep having trouble saying today. Uh, they are two people we always rely on when we have developments in the court fight over Brexit in the UK. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.